After 18 months, we are back with episode 13 of Real Bad, the Breaking Bad podcast of the Real World Podcasting Network. My name is Kevin. With me, as always, is my host, Jerome. Jerome, we've been podcasting this whole time, but I got to say, it feels good to return back to the Breaking Bad universe. Unless you're Nacho or Howard, then it's probably not so good that we're back in this universe. But for the two of us, it's great because we are we are viewers and we are not active participants. But let me tell you, what a half season of television. And Kevin, before we even get started, I just want to say uh, the last two months have been absolutely insane in terms of so many so many shows being eligible for the Emmys, and there has been so much goddamn television between all the streamers, all the networks. It has been absolutely insane. The one thing I will say is Better Call Saul has still stood above the rest because of the quality of the show from a technical standpoint, for the quality of the show from a storytelling standpoint. Uh, there are certainly nitpicks that I have along the way. I don't think this was a perfect season of television, but like you, I am very happy to be podcasting about this show again uh, because it's great and there is so much care taken into it by the writers, by the people who are in front of the camera as well. And uh, even some of the people in front of the camera went behind the camera, and that was very, very exciting. Yeah, and I do recommend if you're really interested in a lot of the technical and logistical parts of the show to check out their official podcast. They do one per episode of the show. Lots of really interesting inside stuff, especially what it's like to shoot and write a television show during COVID. We finished season five airing in the beginning of COVID. You would think two years later it would be over. It is not, and in some ways is getting worse in, uh, in certain areas, but I digress. But yeah, the entirety of this show was written and, and handled through the COVID era, so there's some very interesting notes about that on their podcast. We'll focus more on some of the story stuff, but I've got some interesting tidbits to sprinkle in here. And for us, it was it was 728 days of waiting, if you were watching on live television, between the finale of Season 5 and the beginning of Season 6. Did you go back and rewatch anything before diving into Season 6? The only thing that I rewatched was the season five finale, just because I wanted to remind myself directly what happened before the start of the sixth season, because I figured we were going to pick up right where we left off. So I did remind myself by going back. But Kevin, as you might imagine, there was simply no time to go back and do a full rewatch, even though in an ideal world, I would have done that. But in an ideal world, I also would have watched all of Stranger Things again, and I didn't get a chance to do that because, again, there is so much TV. But I specifically made time to watch the finale from season five because I wanted to remind myself. So uh, that's the only – that's kind of the only prep that I did before the show. Uh, I did not listen to the Insider podcast as you did, uh, but I did – I have listened to a couple of the other uh, post shows that the, the Ringer Podcasting Network has done. Just a lot of theorizing. I don't know if there's anything specific I'm going to reference, but it has been interesting that there is still this uh, passion for the show and a lot of theorizing on 
Reddit and things like that. So it's good that uh, so many people are still engaged with it. It's crazy to me that that AMC, which you don't think of as like this powerhouse of television, it still has Walk the Walking Dead and it still has Better Call Saul, which are two of the buzzier shows still going today. It almost reminds me of like sort of the days of loss with people doing a lot of theories and can, you know, and it's way different because we have Breaking Bad, which happens in the future going on this or there's a lot more to go with and making connections. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun uh, to have things like the official podcast. We're talking to you or other friends about theories, the memes that come of it and stuff to carry you through the week before the next episode airs and the cycle begins anew. I rewatched all of season five and then I went back and I watched, I think, like the finales of most of the other seasons. I, I cherry picked a couple of my favorite episodes just to put myself in the in the headspace and uh, like like you remind myself because it did indeed pick us up exactly where we left off for people like us who didn't watch the finales of the seasons. I did want to kind of start off of where we did let leave off before we get into the season, because, again, it was 728 days between the finale of season five and the beginning of season six. And really, there's there's two main things to kind of cover. First was that Lalo was freed from prison thanks to the help from Jimmy. He returns to his home inside of Chihuahua, which is a sovereign state, before anyone can figure out who he is. And he brings Nacho with him. And so Gus uses Nacho as his inside man to plan this hit on him. And it goes awry. But Lalo gets one of the hitmen to report back that it was a successful mission. So everybody back home thinks that Lalo is dead when really he is alive. And we see him walking away as the final scene in season five. And Mike is able to at least communicate with Jimmy that the plan was successful. And Jimmy and Kim at this time, because Lalo made a visit to them before fleeing, they're in a hotel take for safety. And earlier in the day, Howard had talked to Kim because she had learned that she had quit Schweikert and Coakley where she was a partner to work on pro bono work. And he thinks maybe Jimmy talked her into this and this has stuck such a craw on her that she wants to embarrass or take Howard down a notch. And the way she wants to do it is to get him to close the Sandpiper case, uh, both so Jimmy can get his seven figure settlement and uh, sabotage Howard's attempts to kind of come out looking good in the Sandpiper case. And that, I think, directly takes us into what's the most important parts of season six. It is worth pointing out that they really put the emphasis in some of the previously ons about like Kim is clearly the one that is driving the engine in so much of what's happening at the end of season five and throughout season six. And I think that that is very, very important to note uh, because I think for a long time, I think people were concerned about like, oh, Jimmy slash Saul is going to drag Kim down into the down into the deep end, so to speak. But the reality, uh, Kevin, is uh, it seems to be quite different. Yes, I agree with that completely because you see him kind of have this like sort of a surprise reaction at the end of season five and then the beginning of season six when they're back home and Kim's like, all right, so about this Howard plan, he's like, really, we're going to keep doing that. And I think she is maybe underestimating how much the Chuck situation sits with Jimmy still. And maybe even Jimmy sort of underestimates himself because a lot of that was passed on to Howard, who took the blame himself, and Jimmy allowed for that to be the case. And I think that kind of brings to the end of the season where the lesson wasn't learned and it cost them big. But I guess we'll get there when we get there. I totally uh, agree. 
Yeah. So we'll start with the fact that there's no gene scene at the beginning of uh, the season as there usually has been. But instead we get this flash forward to this giant mansion that's like nice and really parts, but also gaudy in other parts. It's like what I think people like Trump think is the excess of being rich, like a gold bathroom that there's no functionality to it. And it looks just kind of bad. The police seizing everything from it. Including you see a white Cadillac with the lawyer up, license plate, a cardboard cutout of Saul himself thrown in a dumpster, uh, and then from out of a desk drawer in a th- in the in a truck falls the top of the Zafira Anyo tequila bottle that we've seen so many times. So it's this house that apparently Saul Goodman has been living in being seized, and we it's it's sort of like this time out of time thing in that we know it's in the future, but when in the future it's happening, we're not entirely sure. And something I thought was interesting was you may remember that there was this house that Jimmy had found that he had showed Kim that they talked about moving into and they thought about using it and they went back to it. It just wouldn't work with the shots they needed to. Uh, But this was if we weren't going to have a gene scene, I thought this was a very interesting way to start uh, season six. Yeah, I, I am in no way surprised that they did not have a gene scene to start, because if you look at how the last gene scene ends, that would lead you to believe that clearly whenever we see him next, like we are going to be going into something very different, that it's going to be almost a different show than Better Call Saul. So I am not surprised that we did not start season six with the Gene scene. The next time that we see Gene, I would guess it's it's going to be in one of two scenarios. The first one is we get an episode of him kind of in the back, kind of establishing himself and establishing whatever he's doing at the Cinnabon. And also, or the other scenario is like we go straight away to see what he is going to be doing because he does say that he is going to uh, like do, do take care of it uh, himself. So I, I can't say I was surprised. There were a lot of people that were surprised and disappointed that there was absolutely no Gene. There's a part of me that's like, have we been watching like the same show and what these writers do? Like, there's clearly a purpose for everything they do. So I just sort of assumed that we were not going to get a gene scene to start season six. Yeah. And I feel, I definitely feel the same way. And again, the, the last gene scene ends with gene calling the, the vacuum store, the late Robert Forrester to once again, change his identity and, and go away. But then he sees something in the distance that we don't see and changes his mind and pursues it. So you're right. That does not feel to me like something that's going to get blown off top of the season. And again, you're right. You're right. The purpose is what the purpose is. So they're going to put it where it fits best. Uh, so I wasn't disappointed, but I do think it's it's interesting that it's the first season where that wasn't the case. But you're right. If you watch season five and know what the gene scene was, I think there would have been reasonable speculation that the season wouldn't have started out that way. So if you're disappointed, I, a part of me understands, but there, I do think there is part of it that's on you as well. Uh, and I do want to say that just meticulously put together, I know that there are a number of things that are seen in this episode that you kind of learn in ensuing episodes of why they're there. So, again, we could talk about like the technical aspects of this show uh, for days. And quite honestly, Kevin, I-, I think if we had said if we were getting paid to do this show as like a side hustle, I think we could have sat down very easily and done like an hour to 90 minutes on every single episode easily. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. So Lalo has to cover his tracks that he's alive and it's pretty brutal. He gets this Mateo who I think is a relative of his or someone who lives on his land to 
shaved to his mustache to look like him and then has to burn him alive. So when he's identified by the police and the twins, they believably think it's him. But Lalo, on the other hand, is getting ready to come back to the U.S. Uh, he actually calls Hector and tells him that he's alive and says it's in his best interest that nobody else know that he's alive and also tells him that he's pretty sure it was the chicken man. I love that he calls him the chicken man, Gus. And Hector wants proof. But uh, Lalo is like, look, I was up north. I couldn't find proof for a while. But then he gets an idea of where he may be able to find proof and decides not to go over the border after all. And uh, we don't see Lalo again for a couple episodes here. But that was that man, him, him having to kill those two people and stuff was uh, a pretty brutal way for Lalo's introduction into the season for sure. I mean, I always think that I think people have this perception of Lalo as like, I think they think of him as like Omar from the wire, but the reality is, is that he is so much more evil. Like he's much more like Marlo from the wire. And I think people, there is a significant disconnect uh, because Tony Dalton is just so goddamn charismatic. And, you know, I watched this season and I'm just like, boy, Hawkeye really didn't know what they had with him, I guess. And <laughs> I guess not. It also really, really made me want to see a Zorro TV reboot with Tony Dalton in the lead. That's what I wanted. And because he's just so charismatic, he could play the romantic lead as we're talking about later. I mean, Tony Dalton, he's just, he's so good. And even when he is not into episodes, like his presence is literally lingering, is, is lingering over those two episodes. Like, yes. is Lalo going to be here? So that, that is a testament to his performance. It is also a testament to the writers, too. Yeah, him disappearing is, like you said, he still looms large over the episodes, but it's also like that tension is always in the background of when he's going to pop up next, for sure. See, here's um, my thing, and I, I understand why we didn't see him, but I just want to see, like, what is Lalo like in security lines at the airport? Because obviously he flies to Europe. Like, what's that look like? Does like when he gets super annoyed, like if there's like kids and whatnot, like, is he just like, you know, I could kill him, but I can't like, I just, (laughs) I want to see what Lalo's like in realistic situations where he can't actually murder anyone. Like a kid behind him is kicking his seat and he just has like a stress ball in his right hand that he's gripping (laughs) to the point it like pops. Yes, this this is what I want to see. Let's make this 20 episodes, an entire episode of Lalo on a six-hour plane ride. If this were the MCU, it would have a Disney Plus show for sure. Well, he was on a Disney Plus show, let's not forget. That's and true. he got like two minutes. Argu- a, arguably the best part of that show. The best scene in that movie is – or the show. I mean that – and yeah, that says it all. Anyway, it's, uh, <laughs> it's Florence Pugh and Haley Steinfeld eating macaroni and cheese. That is the best part of the Fair show. Fair enough. The, the unspoken rules, anything with pizza dog is tops and then everything. Else I mean, pizza dog is pretty great. Pizza dog is pretty, pretty great. But we have we have severely digressed. We have. All right. So now you have you get to see what all these people are doing with this news of Lalo being gone. Nacho is called by Mike to get him to a safe place to stay. Juan Bolsa, who works for, you know, he works for Don Eladio and keeping the peace between Gus and the Salamancas. Realizes Nacho double crossed them and says they have a bounty on his head. And Gus is very suspicious that Lalo's mission was reported as a success, and yet all of his men were dead. So this is the first we get of Gus not being completely convinced that Lalo may be dead. Gus is a very smart man, as it turns out. That's a that's a hot take you just put forth, Kevin. That Gus is yes. a smart man. And then speaking of ramifications, you get to see some of the ramifications of Jimmy letting. You know, what, what, who what people thought of as de Guzman being Lalo's fake name back in the courthouse. They've more or less figured out who he is and are very suspicious that Jimmy was complicit 
in this case, which he is obviously denying, even though he slips up and accidentally calls him Lalo when he threatens misconduct complaints. And you also get more of you talk about Kim sort of being the person to push Jimmy to Saul. She suggests that Saul is supposed to have an office that reflects his personality and flair, a cathedral of justice, if you will. So it puts the idea into his head to, to find some space of his own, leave the nail salon, so to speak. And then you have Jimmy Kim make their first move against Howard, going to this country club and planting cocaine in his locker for when he and Cliff Main return from their golf game. And it's important to them that Cliff see the bag of cocaine fall out of his locker. And this is you see in the first few episodes, it's getting Cliff to think that Howard is on drugs and uh, maybe a little bit maniacal because he's working on him in this case. Uh, so this is their the first part of their plan coming into into fruition here. It really needs to be seen to be believed like. All I could say is that Bob Odenkirk, it's a great showcase for him. And there are a number of moments throughout this first half that are just funny and great moments. Like, it's not necessarily plot stuff, but it really gives us a sense of who uh, Jimmy Slash Saul is evolving into. And it's, again, just you you put him in a, in a country club and you just kind of let the man cook. And this is what you get. You get a great scene. Of him just being hilarious, uh, you get the you get the return, uh, one of many returns of Kevin Kevin Wachtel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just tremendous. I really really love this, and uh, I I was also very very happy that we got so much at Big League Junior. I think we've talked about our love for at Big League Junior on the Veronica Mars podcast as well as this one, but it still tickles me that Patrick Fabian and at Big League Junior have had interactions on two different shows like this. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's great. Jimmy's great in the country club scene, you know, claiming anti-Semitism and causing a big scene. Uh, I love that when he's about to get caught by Howard and Cliff uh, in the locker room, the only way for him to remain incognito is to get naked and pretend like he's cleaning off after a shower. So you cover his head with a towel. And my favorite part of that is the beginning of the episode. You know, they give you the rating and say what it's for. And nudity is one of the things this episode gets the rating for. And it's because Bob Odenkirk has to get naked and hide in the in the country club locker room. Well, you can imagine you're Bob Odenkirk and you're like, look, I did this action movie called Nobody and got into tremendous shape. The least you could do is write a nude scene in the final season for me. No That's doubt about I, it. That is how I imagine that conversation went. Uh, and then I'm I'm going to point out that the really great thing about the opening scene, too, with the police seizure is there's a lot of what they call priester eggs, basically, where there's items that you see seized in that episode that you see throughout the season. And here it's a copy of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which is on Jimmy's nightstand uh, that you also see in that opening scene. And then you get a special guest in season one, James Urbaniak. I remembered him as Rolf from The Office and Robert Crumb in American Splendor. Uh, But I know Vince Gilligan was a big fan of him doing the voice of Dr. Venture on Venture Brothers. And he did a really great job as like the country club assistant, whatever, whatever role he was there. I I have seen none of the things that you just mentioned, but he is very good in this very small role. I think you would really like American Splendor. Is that a show or a movie? It's a movie. I think it's on HBO Max. It's about um, comic writer Harvey Pekar. Uh, oh, the one with cancer, uh, stuff. Paul Giamatti. Giamatti. Yeah, yeah. Give that a, give that a watch, man. It's a really good movie. I really enjoy it. I will add it to the pile. Yeah, and then uh, have you seen the movie Crumb, the documentary about Robert Crumb? Uh, I don't believe so. There's a criterion on it. It is fascinating. That is it. One weird man and his family is even weirder. 
if you get a Criterion collection DVD of some sort, then clearly there's uh, there's something special about you. Failed to mention episode one was called Wine and Roses. The and thing comes a, a motif of this first half written by Peter Gould, who is one of the co-creators and directed by Michael Morris. Episode two is called Carrot and Stick. Vince Gilligan directs and then Tom Schnauz, who's one of, I think, the best writers on the show, co-writes with Ariel Levine. And here we start again, Jimmy and Kim brainstorming about their next plan of attack uh, with somebody who Cliff Main can meet with so they can make a complaint about Howard's cocaine habit. But it has to be this really like finesse thing of who they choose because it's got to be someone who Howard or that Cliff will meet with, but he doesn't want to take their case. And it has to be somebody who like just knows enough about the law that they know not to mention Jimmy's name, things of that nature. And Kin comes up with the perfect pair for such a cause, Jerome. And that's where we get the return of Betsy and Craig Kettleman. Incredibly happy to see Betsy and Craig. I, even though I did not rewatch season one, I definitely run over them because they are very memorable characters. And I was very happy to see them get kind of a small, again, a small role. We may, we will probably not see them again after this episode, but it was really great to see them here. Just fantastic performances all around. And yeah, I know, uh, I know that you are a big fan of uh, Betsy Kettleman, respectfully. Respectfully. Yeah, and it's great to see them back in something that I really like. And I think this is obviously a smart thing to do in a universe that's already played in, like the Breaking Bad universe, is you have this – they talk about having this whiteboard of characters that they'd like to use again. But it isn't like here's all the characters we'd like to use again. How do we get them in here? It's when they're writing something and they get to a point where they could possibly bring in one of these characters. They go to the board and see who they could identify. And I think that's the difference between good writing and bad writing is shoehorning in a character you want to see back versus utilizing this lived-in universe when it's to your benefit. And that's why I think a show like Better Call Saul is so great. I would agree. I think the biggest problem with so much of TV and especially these prequels, legacy sequels and things of that nature is they just – they put these characters in for absolutely no reason other than to get like a, a metaphorical pop of some sort. And look, right. I do think that there are sometimes the cameos can work. And I think if you do it the right way, like I think it's really good. Like – I'll give you an example. Like Top Gun just came out, and I think that they, they bring back a specific character. I'm not going to spoil it. They bring back a specific character for a specific reason, and I think it works out perfectly. It's not inundated with all these cameos from a million people, but it's just done in a really, really classy and nice way. And I think that's the kind of thing that I would want to see out of Better Call Saul. Like, if you are going to bring these characters back from season one, like have it be for a reason. I would say all the characters that are brought back, there is a specific reason, and I can't think of any single one that feels cheap. The really great thing about the Kettlemans, too, is you get to see where Saul eventually gets some of his ideas for his later office, like the giant blown-up Statue of Liberty, the Battle Hymn of the Republic Muzak playing in the – they they now work for like Sweet Liberty Tax Services in a trailer out in the middle of nowhere, which is perfect for where the Kettlemans are supposed to be, but you get like Jimmy seeing this – and getting some ideas for where you're going to see Saul later. And another great little Easter egg is that when he comes in, you see Betsy serving an indigenous person at the desk. And this is the same man that Walter purchased the 1964 Chevrolet from an Ozymandias to get back home. And that same car is parked outside the building. So to me, that's another great little priester egg you can throw in there. And it, it could have been anybody who she was servicing, but they made it that person. And it made the scene that much more satisfying to us long-term fans. 
Absolutely. And the one thing I will say, and I'm going to say this a couple times probably throughout, I would love to be the person that watches Better Call Saul before Breaking Bad just to see how it plays out. Like, I would imagine that by this point, there are a lot of people who have seen the prequels before, like, the the big Star Wars trilogy. So I'm just – I'm so curious, like, how all of this stuff plays to people who have not watched Breaking Bad yet. But you can imagine a scenario where you do watch Better Call Saul first and then you watch Breaking Bad and everything still kind of makes sense. But I, I would just – I would love to to be the person that could do that. Obviously, we can't because we've seen all of Breaking Bad. But it would just be really interesting like, OK, we followed Saul Goodman for six seasons and now we're following this random chemistry teacher. Um, so, yeah, I would just – I would be so curious. Me too. And I'm, I know those people exist because I've heard of it. Another funny comment that he makes on the podcast is Vince Gilligan says if you include – all of Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul when it finishes, it'll equal 127 hours. So you can watch all of it right before you cut your arm off. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty dark. It, it was a very funny comment for me. And I'll sum up the Kettlemans that they're the perfect patsies. They buy into Jimmy's plan to go to Cliff Maine with a civil suitcase saying that Howard was under the influence of cocaine and thus Craig did not get a fair shake Cliff turns them down, but the damage is done. He's pondering this whole thing about Howard and the cocaine. And then when the Kettlemans try to force Jimmy to represent them, then Kim, who traveled with Jimmy to the trailer with him, figures out very quickly that they're extorting some of their customers and they are able to uh, end that threat very quickly. So the Kettlemans are still on their bullshit, even though uh, Craig could be in very serious trouble if they're discovered. Some people just never learn. And it's also worth pointing out that, again, we are in a situation where Kim is the one taking the lead on this and is the one making the threats and is the one that's being more aggressive. And I think that we kind of reach a fever pitch with Kim kind of taking the lead and specifically what another character says about her. But I'm going to keep pointing this out because I think from a storytelling perspective, it is it's worth pointing out like the numerous examples of Kim being the one to take the lead on this. And clearly there is a reason for that. And that's, that's ultimately why she's probably going to have to be disappeared, but I'm, I'm sure that we are going to get to our predictions, but yeah, Kim again, taking the lead and being the one to threaten the Kettleman's was uh, definitely noteworthy and a uh, very well acted scene uh, by Ray Seahorn, who is not going to get an Emmy nomination. And it really makes me mad. It just makes me mad. Is it possible that she could get it next year, even though the second half airs in the summer of this year? I mean, maybe, but it's uh, it's the drama category is so tough, and yeah, it's I don't know. I mean, the problem is that you Succession is going to win everything. That's the fundamental problem: is that that show is such a juggernaut. It's on HBO. That is the show that's going to dominate. And there's like Sarah Snook is going to win the Emmy for best. Um, female performer in a drama like that's just what's going to happen so it sucks that race but i think it's insulting that she's probably not even going to get nominated like i think that's just insulting for sure um and i think something else worth noting that adds to this is when saul is telling her about this at home kim is the one who says i'd like to go with you to that meeting it wasn't that was not a jimmy or saul idea that was kim who said i'd like to go with you to the, the Liberty tax building. So 
yeah, taking the lead for sure. And then someone is following him in a car when they leave the building. And then back to Gus, he's in, investigating more of the crime scene photos, gets as much of the story as he can, and decides he wants to arrange this keep the peace meeting with himself and Hector Salamanca. And again, remember Hector now has heard from Lalo and was told that Gus was the one who did this. So when Juan Bolsa mediates it and Hector's demeanor and quick acceptance of Gus's condolences uh, lead Gus to believe that Lalo Salamanca lives. I think that it's, it's such a great moment because I love the fact that Gus is the smartest person in a given room until the one time he's not. And then he ends up dead. And I think that's a fantastic way of, of kind of maintaining this character. And it's tough because like, you know, that Gus isn't going to die in better call. Saul. you know, that Mike isn't going to die, but I think you're trying to put these chess pieces in the place that we're basically going to be by the time breaking bad starts. So I think there is just enough Gus, um, to get, to kind of satiate and to keep Giancarlo Esposito on the show, but I think it's it's such a tough thing because again we know the fates of these characters and like by the beginning of season six we pretty much know that the dynamics really aren't going to change. Like the only thing that is uh, the, the, the well, I guess there are two things that are kind of up in the air. Like what happens to Nako and what happens to Lalo. But the situation with the Saltamacas and the, the the Chicken Man, like those dynamics are pretty much set in place. Yes, and that's why I think it's great that they can still build tension, even though you know so many of the outcomes, and that's just good writing. But I also think there's something to – you're talking about Gus being smart. I think it's great that the show kind of plays with where the audience is versus where the characters are. Like throughout this season, we see Jimmy and Kim's plan, but we're behind them. Like you can see their sticky note board and, and investigate as much as you want, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. So they're ahead of the audience there. But we're ahead of everybody knowing that Lalo is alive, and then Gus is the first person to figure it out. And because he's always the smartest person in the room, like you said, it makes sense that he would be skeptical and figure it out first while other characters are in the dark. So I think playing with those dynamics of where the audience is versus the characters are in both those situations is really great. And then a lot of this episode is Gus having to clean up whatever he can at Nacho's place of residence to basically take the Salamancas off of any scent of him being involved in this whatsoever. Nacho's going crazy in his hotel room where he's hiding out. He sees someone spying on him through a ruse through his phone, talking to Tyrus, realizes that it's Gus watching him. But they also planted this this fake safe back at his house. So when Juan Bolsa finds it and calls the phone number, the Salamancas can send the twins after him. And Nacho, by the skin of his teeth, escapes in a pickup truck. Um, and then eventually... Mike is talking to Gus and saying, you know, our best place to find Nacho before the Salamancas do. Gus wants to get his father involved, which Mike is very much against. And I like that dynamic, too. And the episode, uh, you have that piece end of it with Mike receiving a phone call from Nacho, who wants to speak to Gus. And we'll pick up on that in, in episode three. But, yeah, the the relationship between Mike and Gus uh, in this season, and especially when it comes to how Mike wants to play with the situation with Nacho and then later the people who are on watch is very interesting to watch in the season. Well, and knowing what we know about the Mike Nacho relationship, I think that will also affect how we see the Mike Jesse Pinkman relationship, because I think that in a lot of ways, Nacho and Jesse are, are kind of one in the same. Yes, they're in the game, but they desperately want out. And, um, I don't know if they, they have the, the stuff, so to speak, as Mike will tell uh, Kim uh, in a future episode. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just really good stuff. And I think it was very obvious that, that Nakia was going to die at some point. I just didn't think that it would be this early because you watch these first two episodes and you're like, okay, Nakia's not going to make it very much longer. Like he is going to die in the first half of the season not just the first half, but like the first few episodes, like it was becoming really obvious to me. And uh, every time Better Call Saul would start, I would always send the uh, a sweat gift to you, uh, just because like it was very obvious that Nacho was going to meet his end, and Howard was probably going to do the same. But I just wasn't sure was it going to be in the first half of the season or the second half. And the fact that they killed Nacho so early also kind of made me sweat it out with Howard as well. But that's the good thing about the beginning of episode three is you're more or less seeing what happens to Nacho between him escaping the hotel and eventually calling Gus. And that's him having to hide under this oil in a storm drain, finding a mechanic shop where he can wash off and get some new clothes and then eventually calling his father to check in. And then it's after that he kind of comes to terms with his fate. And that's when he calls Gus and basically offers – knowing that he's he's only good to them dead, is offering his surrender if it means keeping his father protected. And I think that bargain speaks to a lot of what Nacho does the rest of this episode. If I didn't know that – if I did not know that Nacho was going to die, then that conversation with the father really sold me on it because right. it's like, oh, this is a goodbye. Like this is not – this is not going to end well. And and from a technical perspective, just the way that they show the escape and, and with him submerged in the sludge, like just from a technical perspective. And um, this show loves process and it loves to show things happening. And this is a really great example of it. It's uh, it's really good stuff across the board. And uh, what a what a great way. Uh, for Nacho to kind of get a showcase in this episode. Like this really, like we barely see my, or, or Jimmy and Kim in this episode. And I think it's appropriate. Like to me, like giving Nacho this big swan song, I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, he delivers a tremendous performance throughout, but, and look, I understand that Nacho is in many people's eyes is the most important part of this episode. But for me, Kevin Ford, the most important part of this episode is the return of Huel. I knew you were going to say that, but one thing I'll say before talking about Huel is I also really like, as you know, you and I always talk about the tells of like, especially talking about Werner, like all these things that came along with, wanting to go home, talking about retirement, all these tells that he's going to die. I do like that Nacho makes the phone call to his father. It becomes pretty crystal clear he's going to die. And they waste no time with him then giving himself up to Gus, knowing that he's going to be killed uh, for his father's protection. Like they don't they don't make you think like, all right, I know. And then you have to wait a few episodes. It's pretty fast that they get to the to the punchline, so to speak. I, I'm just glad that Nacho's dad did not have a blueprint of a boat that he was going to retire on. Otherwise I'd be like, well, <laughs> Nacho's father's dead too, but he yeah. did not have the blueprint. So I, I, I don't think we are going to see Nacho's father ever again. I think we could just assume he's like doing his own thing and, and living yes. and obviously mourning his son's loss, but I, I don't think we're going to see him again. I agree. Um, but yeah, so you get a Huel Babineau back as they need to make a copy of, Howard's car key and you need somebody with a light touch Jerome and there's nobody better in the business than Huel Babineau. Absolutely not. I think it would be unacceptable if there was a final season without Huel. I would just be very, very mad. 
And I do love that when he gives Jimmy the key and he gets his cash, he asks the question I think that a lot of people would ask of them is like, why are you guys doing this? You're successful lawyers. What is this? And I like how Jimmy kind of spins the story about making a real difference and doing good work. And Huel's not buying it. Huel ain't no dummy. I I love the fact that Huel, of all people, like is asking this question. I think that's that's a great character decision because like Huel's in the game, like he's probably been doing low level stuff for like his entire life at this point, as we will continue to see on Breaking Bad. Like he's in the game, like he knows right. what he's doing, but it's like you get this really strange moment where he's like, "You guys don't have to." do this you realize that right like he will yeah. has the self-awareness that jimmy and kim like don't and i think that's the difference is that he will is very street smart and he can kind of see different angles that jimmy and kim are just missing so i really like that he was the one to point point this out it's uh it's great character work and and i think another great piece of character work is i think there's part of me that in this episode you have suzanne erickson at the courthouse pull kim aside and say you know, we'd really like if, if Jimmy really was in cahoots with Lalo and he knows more about this men, I think there's something where Jimmy can help us find some of these other men and he wouldn't get in trouble. And she's hoping to appeal to Kim's good side and Jimmy's deep down, you know, what's right, what's wrong, whatever. And Kim and the, the takeaway for me is like Kim correcting her on calling him saying, oh, he goes by Saul now. And then later when Kim talks about it and Jimmy asks what she should do and she says like, well, that depends if you want to be a friend of the cartel or a rat. I think you get a lot of where, where Kim's headspace is between these two scenes more than the actual meat of Jimmy potentially coming forward with information. You know, I think one of the worst case scenarios for so many people was what if Kim has to die, right? But what yeah. if the the writers posit what if not dead, but something worse than death? She breaks bad. Like yeah. I think that's an even worse case scenario, and that's clearly what the writers are playing with. And I mean, I'm going to address this in my predictions, but I mean, Kim is really the one that again is driving this, so to speak. And I think it's worth noting that Kim is the one in the scene um, with Suzanne and not Jimmy. Like they they're very clearly doing that for a reason. And it's because Kim is made of stronger stuff. Like that's like that's it. And I think it's really it's great character work because I think one of the things that people were so critical about breaking bad is that, you know, Skylar's just ruining all the fun and taking away from the fun of Walt. But in this case, the writers are like, Okay, you want the woman to be involved in the fun? Well, she's gonna drive this bus and people are gonna die and it's gonna be bad. So it's uh it's good stuff. It's great stuff all around. And then you got to wrap up Nacho's story here. Mike gets him to a warehouse where he's given his last meal. They got to make it convincing that they captured him. So Gus has got to, or I'm sorry, Mike has to beat him up a little bit. Gus makes sure he's got his confession straight. So when they meet with Juan Bolson and the Salamancas, it doesn't put any of the blame on them. And Mike also convinces uh, Gus that he should be at the meeting, but he can go from afar as a sniper since they've, the Salamancas have seen his face before. And as Nacho at this meeting is telling his story, Again, Hector has been told it was Gus, so he's ringing his bell and pointing to Gus, and Nacho tells him nobody else helped him, and by God, does he cut a promo on Hector when he tells him that it was him who put him in the wheelchair and replaced his hard medications with placebos. Just the, some of the finest work from him in this whole season. 
it's uh, Michael Mondo. This is this is his definitive. Like, if he's campaigning for an Emmy, like this is the episode that he is going to send in, and he probably deserves a lot more consideration than he is going to get because he's just he is absolutely incredible in this scene. Just the things that he says and the things that he does, like it's all been building to this moment and it just feels like Nacho has been so reserved and like, he's been trying to play people off of each other, but like he knows this is his last moment. So he's just going to let it all hang out and it works. This scene just works super well. Like I cannot, I have no notes legitimately. Like (laughs) I cannot think of a single change that I would make because not only do they definitively like have him with this moment, but like they kill him and he is dead, dead, like leaving no doubt that he is dead, like shooting him in the head. The, they continue to shoot him afterward. Like there is no doubt. They're, they're not leaving any, any doubt in your mind about whether Nacho is alive or not. And that's also something that I appreciated about both breaking bad and better call Saul. When they kill someone, you know they're dead. There is no yes. doubt in your mind they are dead. Yes, definitely. And the other thing I like, and I, I really encourage people, if you listen to any of the official podcast, is this one, because Michael Mando has these incredible, like, the way he sees things and views different scenes and, like, the metaphors behind them and all that is really incredible. But he talks about how, for him, this was it, this was Nacho dying with dignity the best way he could. And that, like, yes, he stabs Juan Bolson in the leg with a piece of glass and grabs a gun, but it isn't like he uses him as a human shield and tries to have a shootout with Hector and the twins. He he gets up on his own feet and and shoots himself in the head, and he, he kind of takes things into his own hands of taking his own life away. Because if he did try to shoot them, then his father probably is going to be dead. And so he's – He's getting on his own feet, taking his own life, ensuring his father is going to be safe, and it's the best way he can die with dignity after doing what he did. And then you have the cousins helping Hector shoot him a few times. I'm sure that made Hector feel better about himself. But yeah, there's no doubt that this is the end of Nacho, and yeah, most of the episode is centered around him for good reason. But, you know, and I do think for this last season, you have all these characters who whose fates need to be decided. So in episode three, for us to say goodbye to Nacho, I do think is kind of a good thing. Yeah, and I, I was like, after episode three, I was like, man, this podcast is going to be like three hours long, and then we do kind of get the one thing I will say. I said, I said, I had some nitpicks. I think, I think these seven episodes could have been five episodes because I think episodes four, five, and six. It's not that there's anything bad. Like the show is never bad, but there are definitely some moments when I'm like, okay, we get it. I think I think they could have combined some scenes together and it would have still been just as effective. But again, that's that that is a nitpick. That is not me criticizing the show overtly. It's just I definitely think we hit a peak in season three or in episode three, and then it took us a while to get back there. Sure. And I think that's I I think it was okay to have episode like four and maybe even five be a little bit of a breather, like a down episode after something. So I I, I did not mind the fact that there was a down episode. I think you needed one just to kind of set the pieces in place for whatever they're going to do with Howard. I just think that we needed like one one episode of that and not two and a half. That's fair. And episode four hit and run is directed by Ray Seahorn. And I'm curious they didn't say this, but I and I think Ray Seahorn and then 
later in episode six, you get Giancarlo, uh, Giancarlo Esposito being the director. I'm curious if this being in the pandemic is part of the reason they had two of the actors be the directors too. Not to say they wouldn't have been if, if all was going well, but I do think there is maybe a practical part of that decision behind it too. Well, I'm also curious because Peter Gould does not direct any episodes in the first half. And I'm wondering if from a logistical standpoint, because he is the showrunner, if he almost couldn't direct because he had other duties that he had to do, COVID-related and whatnot. So I'm curious if he didn't direct an episode in the first half for that reason as well. That's a very good point because to me it sounded like the writers were not on set, but the directors obviously were. And even like I know Racy Horn posted a photo and it's like – She's watching from basically like a separate room on a monitor masked like they're taking all the precautions they possibly can. And I'm sure the writers could have been on there, you know, on an iPad through a Zoom call or a Skype call or something. But, yeah, I have to imagine there's a lot of those just like little things you take for granted that made it a little more difficult there. But that that was just something I kind of thought about. But I do really like the intro to this episode where you see this older couple on this very pleasant bike ride and the music playing in the background is very funny in there making note of like this house being repainted, how gaudy it looks. And then you enter their house and there's this bank of monitors and they're watching Gus's house and their security guards. And you're like, what is this? Cause they're not making any note of it. And later, what I really like about it is it's, it's, you're wondering what this is. And then later you see Gus also owns this house and he's connected his two homes via this underground tunnel. And it's a surveillance house that I guess, because of his position, he needs this for his protection. And what I do like too, is that, you know, there's that scene in, in uh, Breaking Bad where uh, Walter drives up to Gus's house. I think it's in like the early part of season four. And Tyrus calls him and says, go home, Walter. And they always wonder, like, well, how did Tyrus know Walt was there? And I think most fans could probably explain a way that, like, Gus is a, a mysterious man. But now we have our answer. He has he's purchased this adjacent home that he has a real couple living in to not raise suspicion, but it's to uh, to protect himself and his assets. And I thought that's a, a pretty cool way to sort of retcon that, that maybe you didn't need, but it, it's still a cool way to do it, I think. And, and I think that's absolutely something Gus would have. Yeah, I mean, Gus having panic rooms and all that stuff. I mean, of course, if he's going to be a part of this business. And knowing his background, too, and I think this is something that the show doesn't really directly play with, but it's definitely something that I think about. Like, we know that he is from Chile, right? Like, that's his background? Yes. So, if we are to think about his age, like, it's possible that he was around um, in, in Chile during, like, some of the absolute worst times. Like, you're thinking about 1973, there was a takeover of the government, and it became this fascist dictatorship. So you have to wonder, like, how does that play into everything that Gus does? And again, this is all subtext. This is not things that um, we are going to be addressing on the show, but it clearly has to be a part of who Gus is. Like, if you live through all this trauma as a child with pro- maybe like your family getting killed by the government, like how is that going to affect who you are, how you interact with people and just like who you are as a person. So that's definitely been on my mind, especially watching this scene uh, with Gus just going around his house. And I mean, no other show is going to do this. No other show is going to spend like 10 minutes just watching Gus go through a house. But I appreciate the fact that they, that this, this is the kind of show that will engage in the kind of this nerdy process thing. And I love his performance in this episode, like the scene where he comes home from work and he's dressing down like he's, 
uh, you know, we see he's wearing like a bulletproof vest and he takes that off. But then he's like getting his uh, he's changing into like his evening wear, which is basically just more nice clothes, but different from his work clothes, which I'm sure stink working in a chicken place. And he's got his gun holster around his leg that he takes off and then thinks twice and puts it back on. Like that shows you where his head's at when he thinks Lalo is alive. And even though he has these people watching him, he wants to remained armed even in the probably the safest place he can be right now just really great uh physical acting from Giancarlo in this episode yeah it's uh it's it's really really good stuff across the board and yeah it's i i think it's really interesting because he's been doing this i mean he's been playing this this gus role for so long and he's kind of gotten I think he's kind of fallen into the trap and you know, if you get money to do these things, like you're going to do it, but like he's played similar roles in like star Wars and playing a similar role in the boys. Like he just kind of does this now. And one of the things that I'm really excited for is that I guess he's going to be doing a show for AMC that is going to be him as a cab driver. And I'm really excited for that because it's going to be something that is so different from Gus, because again, he is so good in this role I, I feel like he could almost do it in his sleep. Like he could do, he could play this role with his eyes closed because he's just been doing this kind of role uh, for over 10 years at this point. So just wanted to point that out because, but again, I want to emphasize he is very good. Like he can do this really well. He is locked into this character. He's awesome. Very much looking forward to him playing something that is very different from Gus Fring now. Same. And just the last note on him is that Mike is, talking about how their security is really stretched in and wants to pull some off duty, but Gus is certain Lalo is alive and keeps them where they are. So just a little more tiff between the two of them. But a lot of this episode has to do with Jimmy and Kim's next plan with Howard, who is in therapy. Uh, we see, and he, things are not going well with at home. It appears we get his first mention of his wife, Cheryl, because we really don't get a lot of his home life. It's a lot of work life with Howard. And then my God, we get to see Jimmy, cosplaying Howard and holy shit. It was that an amazing thing to witness. Genuinely one of the funniest things that I've ever seen. Like visual humor is not something that better call Saul does that often when they do humor, but Oh my God, was this hilarious. The haircut. It was, it was absolutely perfect. Yeah. And so this is where he gets to steal Howard's car. He picks up Wendy, who we saw in the, uh, a few different episodes of breaking bad, the, meth addict prostitute from the hotel and Kim has arranged for a meeting with Cliff at this outdoor coffee shop so they can witness what is in Howard's car. Someone who appears to look like Howard, at least from a distance, shoving Wendy out of the car and driving away, uh, just adding more to the pile of stuff that Cliff is wondering what the hell is going on with Howard. And the thing that is also interesting is you're wondering like, okay, so he's making Howard to look out like a drug addict, like, Obviously, it's not good, but what's the big deal? But the great thing about the meeting is we overhear with Kim and Cliff is that Cliff's son is a drug has a drug problem. So this is all very personal for him, which I thought was a nice wrinkle to to add to this story. Yeah, again, we got a ton of Ed Bailey Jr., which I'm always very, very happy. And yeah, I think he 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 gives such a solid performance and plays off of Kim so well because the thing about Cliff that makes him different from every other character almost in this universe is that he is completely earnest. And I feel like when Cliff says something, there's no like real deep meaning behind it. Like 
he offers Kim a job and that's what he that's what he does. So it makes him completely unique from anyone on Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul because of that. And I mean, I, I think you could argue that Hank to an extent is kind of the same way, but in this case Cliff is not an asshole. So I think that's what makes this different. But yeah, Ed Bigley Jr. playing uh the most earnest character in this universe is uh is a real pleasure to watch. And I don't know how much I I, I think we are going to get some of Ed Bigley Jr. in the second half, but I can't help but think of the uh, the John Travolta Pulp Fiction gif, like Cliff at the end of the Breaking Bad timeline. It's like it's just him by himself. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Because yeah, I mean, what 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 else is there for him to do except for I guess you know attend Howard's funeral or uh, you know ask him why she ditched the meeting? But that is important about this conversation too. Is although it was Kim's ploy to have Cliff see fake Howard throw Wendy out of the car? He has this idea. It's like I've heard about this thing that might be coming up where you can get paid for your pro pro bono practice. And Kim is like, Oh, that's actually a genuinely good thing coming out of this meeting that is set up to be a ploy and more physical comedy with Jimmy, you know, escaping by the skin of his teeth with Howard and him telling Kim the story about wrestling the sign back home and asking who moves cones. Cause somebody moved the cones to park into the spot where Howard's car is. So he had to move the sign. It was tremendous stuff. That may be the worst thing that any character does on the show, by the way, is move those cones. Move those cones, no doubt about it. For sure the worst thing. And when Kim drops off Wendy back at the hotel, she notices a sedan following them. And you at first think it's maybe cops watching the hotel, but it's actually following Kim. I don't think it's a mistake, by the way, that the dining room that they're eating at is called the El Camino dining room. Uh, What possible significance could that have in the Breaking Bad universe? I don't know, but maybe maybe it'll have something. And Kim sees the sedan, eventually confronts them, and it comes to the point where Mike has to come to Kim at the dining room and explain that it's him watching them and Lalo Salamanca is alive. And she realizes then that that was the guy who helped Jimmy out of the desert, but also that he worked at the courthouse and she's a bit shaken. But yeah, this is our first meeting between Mike and Kim and they really made a count. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty amazing that they had never actually interacted with one another in this way. Like, I think you could assume that perhaps they had met when Mike was a parking lot attendant, but obviously Mike is a very different person now when he compared to that point. And I think even Kim is a very different character when she was a lawyer, uh, kind of struggling and where she is now. But yeah, it's a, it's a great scene and I'm really glad that they got to play off of each other. Maybe this is like one of their few scenes together. So they really did make a count and they also didn't make a big show of it either. I appreciated that, that they didn't linger on it too long. They just, they had the scene and they did it and it worked out really well. And we get the fantastic quote uh, from Mike um, saying that Kim is made of stronger stuff. I think that's one of the most important quotes in the entire series because Again, we are putting this emphasis on Kim kind of taking the lead in so much of what's going on. The plot with Howard, you know, the fact that Kim knows that Lala was alive. She chooses not to tell Saul. It's yeah. a, that's a that's a pretty big deal. So that that quote that quote has really stuck with me. Yeah, it's a big deal for fans. It's a big deal for the show. It's it's really really well done. And then we get basically Jimmy having the end of his time in the courthouse and moving to his new office because everyone's ostracizing him now at the courthouse, assuming that he's helping Lalo. You see uh, there's that court scheduler who he'd always bribe with like a beanie baby. She's not even 
going with his BS and the beanie baby owl who he tried to bribe her with is seen being seized in season one. Um, but even though they're all ostracizing him, he's become increasingly popular with ne'er-do-wells, underworld people, what have you, who are infesting the nail salon trying to get meetings with him, consultations from him. One of them is Spooge, who you may remember, Jerome, as the gentleman who gets his head smushed by an ATM by Jesse in Breaking Bad. I mean, what a way to come back. Again, it's just – and I think a lesser show would have made like some sort of a cheeky reference to it. So I appreciate that that is something they chose not to do. But I think there's I think there's some commentary here. Like, okay, so Jimmy is obviously not a bad guy, right? Or he is a bad guy at this point. Like, he is associating himself with drug dealers. But the context that I always think about the show in is you look at Breaking Bad, and it very lightly touched the idea of kind of healthcare and just how messed things up things are things are so messed up but like in that show cops lawyers they're still kind of treated as protagonists in a lot of ways what you get with this show is the criminal justice system is beyond fucked like that's the thing that has been so much a part of the entire run of this show is that we see how messed it up it is consistently like i think of a perfect example of that is kim being taken into the room where there's all of those uh, cases that a public defender would need to take on. And they're like, you're talking about human beings, but they are literally reduced to, they are just an organized file and they get their own section. It just is portrayed as this very cold calculating world. And for me, it's like, okay, so Jimmy has been able to navigate this world for so long. And like at the end of the day, like it's it's they're all part of like this club, like the lawyer, like the legal club. But even though this club can be very evil in a lot of ways and very cold and very callous, like Jimmy has apparently done something so bad that even he is going to get ostracized. But if you're looking at it from his perspective, like how is what Jimmy slash Saul doing? Is it really any worse than putting somebody in jail, even though they may be innocent, or like fighting for them to get the highest possible sentence, even though they're you know they're like a teenager, but but because they can't afford a, a good lawyer, like that is acceptable. But what Jimmy is doing is not. So I couldn't help but think about that in terms of like what we see now in the justice system, and I think the show is trying to subtly make this point i don't think they're trying to beat people over the head with it but for me that's the thing that i couldn't help but think about it's like okay yes i understand jimmy is not a good person but is what is what he is doing any worse than what a lot of these lawyers are doing my guess is probably not yeah i mean he he gets to be the pariah for the rest of the the system but I mean, at the end of the day, he was a lawyer doing his job, and yeah, he had the fake family and the fake this and and whatnot, but it was also literally his life on the line if he didn't comply. And yes, maybe he put themselves in that position, but again, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head here with it being an analysis of of the whole justice system without hitting you over the head with it. You can can look at it as much as you want. 
I also want to point this. I also want to point this out because I think it could easily be forgotten. I want to point out that the the leaked document from the Supreme Court about Roe v. Wade literally came out as this episode was airing. So it definitely that was also on my mind as this scene was happening. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That it's uh, it's crazy. It's not great either. No, it's very bad. Obviously very bad. But what it all boils down to is Jimmy's kicked out of the nail salon and needs to find a new office. And he ends up finding an empty storefront or strip mall to move into, which will eventually become the office we see in Better Call Saul. But we get to see sort of the the origin of that office throughout the rest of the season. And episode five, I think, is very interestingly titled Black and Blue because the final episode of Breaking Bad before Saul makes his grand debut is called Negro y Azul, which is black and blue in Spanish. That's in season two, episode seven. So – there's no mistakes in that show, and I thought that was a very interesting title choice. And we have Kim here is now with this newfound knowledge, can't sleep, knowing that Lalo is alive, according to Mike. And again, she Jimmy wakes up, and she's like, oh, I can't sleep. She just doesn't take the chance to tell him about the meeting with Mike and all that stuff. I, I don't know that I can really figure out why do you think Kim doesn't tell Jimmy about this? I think Kim wants to execute this plan with Howard and not have – Jimmy worrying about like what's going on with Lalo. And I think she's kind of making this risk assessment, like, okay, we're going to get this done with Howard. We're going to get our money. And then maybe I'll tell him, or we'll have so much money. It doesn't even matter. So I think it's kind of a risk assessment that she's making. And she's clearly being more calculating in her decision-making. And I think it's worth pointing out that to an extent, it doesn't seem like Jimmy even knows who the real Kim is. And I think that's also a theme of this first of this first half is that Howard by the end seems to have a better understanding of who Kim is as a person uh, than, than Jimmy, which I think is pretty fascinating uh, as we will discuss in a, in a couple, in a couple minutes. But that, that's the reason why I just think that she is, she wants to have this plan. Uh, she wants to have sex with Saul while they're listening uh, to what's going on. And uh, that's, that's kind of what she wants. I also do think there is something to it where if if she knows Mike isn't knows and has someone watching them, then like more or less she probably assumes they're as safe as they can be. Even if it is bothering her in the middle of the night where she has to get up and physically you know put a door or a, a chair under the doorknob, I think there's maybe part of her in the back of their mind thinking like there's no reason to tell him because we're we're being we're in good hands with you know with Mike's it, this this would not, I want to emphasize this would not be good storytelling but I do think it would be funny if Kim kept that door there at the end and like and Lala walked in and like skewered himself or something and that's how he died <laughs> like this yeah. care actually paid off again terrible storytelling but it would be really really funny and i think in a different show you could almost get away with it but clearly you could not get away with it under these circumstances no doubt about it yeah but that would be <laughs> that'd be great Kim use one of her old paralegals to find out the name of the individual who's going to be the mediator for the uh, this upcoming sandpiper case meeting uh they got a sweet mustache as we as we learned Rand casimero being his name then you finally get Cliff confronting Howard after uh, they're talking to the Sandpiper residents, and Cliff's really observing Howard shaking his knee and interrupting Aaron during the presentation, which uh, I think maybe any other time wouldn't be suspicious, but is here. And it clicks in Howard's head when Cliff tells him that he was meeting with Kim when he saw him allegedly throw a prostitute out of the car that this is all Jimmy McGill's. And Cliff simply doesn't understand or doesn't believe Howard, uh, but... Howard's got an idea. He's pissed. 
and rightfully so. Uh, I think Cliff, under the circumstances, has every reason to be pissed. And, man, it's just – it's such good stuff. Patrick Fabian and Ed Bigley Jr. are so good together. And it's it's remarkable how much time they get to play off of each other because, you know, this is a show that is, of course, about Kimmy McGill. But because the pieces on the chessboard are slowly disappearing, like we're coalescing around these very specific storylines – and especially because, you know, Nacho has, is dead and that storyline has kind of been put on ice. Like a lot of our focus in these episodes is setting up what's going to happen with the Howard situation. And I can't help but think about like clearly the writers are heavily influenced by so many heist movies. Like even the idea of we're going to plant the ideas in the heads of these other people, like that's inception. Like, I don't know if that's what they're consciously going for, but I couldn't help but think of Inception. And there's even a moment when they're in the photo room. And I don't know if it's this episode, but there's definitely like a specific vibe, like a Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven vibe that they're going for with the music and with even the setting. So I couldn't help but think like clearly heist movies play a significant role in what is going on with this season. And as you know, I am a huge fan of heist movies, so I was all about it. It would have either been the next the episode six or seven when that happened, because six is when they had the first set of photos. Seven is when they got to rush the next set of photos to get to get them on time for the meeting. And I know you were happy to see Huel again, as was I, but I was really happy to see Francesca back in the fold in this episode. You, you could do a half hour sitcom of just Saul and Francesca in the office. Like you could oh, do God. a season of that. Her just looking at this dilapidated, un, un, <laughs> undecorated space that's just like – it's been like stripped bare, floor to ceiling, just stripped totally bare, a, a toilet in the middle of the of the place, a bunch of these really grimy people outside. And she's like, what? And, and no Kim. And she's like, what have I gotten myself into? And it takes a whole lot of money and convincing for her to, to stick around. And the toilet in the middle, I love that it was actually inspired by a real apartment Vince saw in Richmond, Virginia, of all places. Uh, which just, is not, which is a stone's throw away from you. A couple hours away, but it's just funny. Like he's talking about how his friend was there getting an apartment shown. There's a toilet not plumbed in the middle of the apartment that someone had used, <laughs> and the person showing them around makes no mention of it until they're like, "Dude, what's with the friggin' toilet?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, uh, we'll take care of that." So the fact that it was inspired by a real event, Vince Gilligan's wisely like, look, I don't take any credit for this episode aside from this. This is my story. Uh, for sure. But we're ba- we're burying the lead, Kevin. And you know what we, I'm talking about. Are you talking about the boxing match? Yeah, I am. This is the highlight of the episode, I think, is Howard's had enough. And he uses a the guise of a Mr. H.O. Ward to draw Jimmy into a house call. And he says, I've had enough. I don't know why you're doing this to me. We need to hash this out. And he's brought him to this boxing gym where they have themselves a, a little pugilist moment here. And you you really love this scene. I mean, the fact that we're not spending two hours talking about it is kind of a shame. But this scene is just absolutely perfect. And I love the idea that Bob Odenkirk has spent all this time learning how to fight for nobody. Kevin, have you seen nobody yet? I saw it in theaters. I think that might have been the first movie uh, during the pandemic I watched. So I love that Bob Odenkirk goes through this whole thing. And it, like, I don't know that this was conscious because he is a producer on the show, but this is like a giant rib on him because he is 
he is booked, quote unquote, to be such a terrible fighter. And I love the fact that Patrick Fabian and Bob Odenkirk performed most of the fight themselves. It's it is absolutely fantastic. No notes. I I could have watched this scene a million times. Everything from the fight to how annoyed the trainer is, like he is beyond over it at by the end. <laughs> this just awful, awful fight. And one of the things that I speculated with you about is it's a shame that with COVID, like you had to do it this way. Like you basically you had to have them fighting and like one other person. I could have seen a scenario to make this even funnier where like all of the boxers are also there and it's during the daytime. And they're also just watching and laughing this terrible, terrible fight that's going on. So it's a shame we couldn't get that. But man, man, what a great scene. Yeah, it was awesome. And like you said, like it was fortunate that Bob Odenkirk had just gone through this physical training for nobody. He had this coordinator training. And they said that he kind of had to unlearn some stuff to make it seem like how would Saul fight versus somebody who's had some – expertise and Patrick himself is a very uh fit person. So and what I really like too is they talked about how they did most of the fight themselves and how uh Luis Moncada, who plays one of the twins, in real life he trains and teaches boxing. So they got to hire him as the fight coordinator. I always love when you get somebody in house who gets another paycheck doing something else. You know, why wouldn't you u- utilize your resources like that? So that that to me adds even more to it. And what I really love is that Howard gets the the better of Jimmy during it and he's like and even he realizes, like, I would like for this to end things, but I know it probably won't. Well, and the important thing is that we also get introduced after this to the PI, who we will eventually learn is working for Jimmy, but is allegedly working for Howard here. And the and the payoff to that is so good. It is, it is incredible. It's really good. But so there is – I like the fact that, yes, this boxing scene is fucking hilarious, but I love the fact that it there is actually a good reason for it to happen too. Same. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's going to be one of the most memorable moments of the season, I'm sure. And what I also like here is that it, Kim is not the only one on edge about Lalo, but so is Gus. And don't forget, he just went through the whole watching Nacho shoot himself in the head thing. So he's at uh, Poyos trying to his best to distract himself. And what I really like is that he's talking about the signature spice curls at the cash register to somebody. And that's when he kind of loses focus. And I don't know if this is exactly what it is, but – the last time he mentioned those Spice Curls that there's this meeting with uh, with Madrigal with all the different fast food outlets and uh, you know he gets to talk about how their profits are up or this and then he introduces this new product and he has everybody uh, have these Spice Curls at the table and I think this is maybe what made him realize uh, – he made him think of Germany and that Lalo may be heading there as that little connection. Again, it's never made explicit but I think that's what – you, you could make that connection there if you wanted to. I mean, only Gus would be the one to make that connection. I can't think of literally anybody else who would. And uh, I love I love the fact I, – I just want to know logistically how Gus is able to run a drug empire and manage his restaurants because he is like in the restaurant all the time and it's uh, it's pretty amusing to me. I just – I want to know logistically like what does Gus's life look like? Is he the type of person that only sleeps like three to four hours a night because he's like spending eight hours at the chicken place and eight hours doing drug stuff? Probably, but I think he's probably not at Poyos every day because he doesn't have to be, right? He's the he's the owner, but I think he's there enough for when he gets his honest-to-goodness paycheck. If he's audited, there's enough – he just has to be there enough for it to be 
to make it look like he's really running things. I would um, love it. Uh, can we get a scene with Huel like doing the books and being like, you know, Gus, you don't, you you make so much money from the chicken. Why are you drug dealing? <laughs> it's like Huel, can you? Why why are you the good guy here? Why are you at questioning everyone? Stop stop questioning me. I'm also picturing Huel with the little the little visor as he's doing the books as well. And uh, oh yeah, like, to no end. Like uh oh, what do they call them? Like what poker people wear? Like a croupier's hat. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Later, you see them, Gus and Mike, at the, the super lab where Mike's ensuring him nobody can break in. It's safe, and he's got men watching it. And then Gus hides a handgun in the track of an excavator, and I wrote, just in all caps, a literal Chekhov's gun here in Breaking Bad. Or, I'm sorry. But the, quest, the question is, will Gus be the one to shoot it? Well, we'll get to predictions later. We uh, will, but uh, we're, we're, we need to spend another two hours talking about the next scene as well. Boy, do we ever, because we find ourselves in Germany, and there's this woman at the bar who's having a drink, and Lalo appears and uh, have a little flirtate. They they flirt quite a bit, and uh, we turn out it's Marguerite. This is Werner's uh, widow, and he learns that at his funeral, none of the boys showed up, but they sent a keepsake, and Lalo drops her off at the house and uh, doesn't get to go inside, probably fortunately for Marguerite's life, but it does – Make it so the next day he gets to investigate the house where he finds this keepsake that the boy sent to her. It's one of Werner's slide rules that's encased in Lucite, and the manufacturing label on the bottom gives him a clue of where to go next, and he's able to escape before he's caught. Um, but that Lucite, the, the the opening scene is you get to see the actual encasement of the slide rule into Lucite, and I found that to be very fascinating, and that whole thing was to set up uh, just giving uh, Lalo – the idea to where to go next. And there was a dog in the house and I was just sweating the whole time that it was going to get got. And thank goodness that little bear, the dog lives for now. That's really the most important thing, right? Like forget yes. everything else, like kill Nacho, kill Howard, kill anyone you want, but the dog don't kill the dog. <laughs> don't kill. Yeah. Kill Marguerite. Let the dog live. <laughs> if John Wick has taught us anything, it's that you should never kill the dog. Yeah. I, that's, that's 100% true. Um, I love this, this scene. I, I just, I love the scene. I love the detail of Marguerite at the bar. Kind of like you could see why Werner married her because she's like pointing things out that they're getting wrong. And I, it, I, I certainly would have found it plausible if they had, uh, if they had made coitus. Though I fell in love with Marguerite during this scene. Uh, she's she's wonderful. That actress is great, and they did a really convincing job dressing up Albuquerque to look like uh, it could have actually been in Germany. Yeah, just uh, just good stuff all around. And yeah, I, I totally bought that Lalo would be a uh, romantic lead. Like he is very James Bond in this scene and it works out perfectly. And then in episode six, this is the one directed by Giancarlo Esposito. And I believe it might be Ariel Levine's solo writer credit. Her and Tom Schnauz were on an episode earlier in the season. Lalo follows that clue from Werner's home to find Casper, one of the men who was – one of the workers in the super lab and they have a, a pretty brutal fight. He gets uh, Casper gets his face slashed and his foot severed. And Lalo asks him for all the details about working with Werner. And that'll lead us to the next episode, but brutal stuff with this scene with Lalo and, and Casper. Yeah. Basically this becomes a horror movie for about 10 minutes and you almost never see them go full horror. They also change the color grade as well. All the scenes in Germany look more blue than the kind of red, orange, pink that you get with uh, when they shoot Albuquerque. So I like that those little details. 
And uh, yeah, there's uh, there's there's a lot of good stuff in episode six, even the way it starts. But I'm sure we'll get to that. The stuff with Lalo is just brutal because, like, again, he is a very brutal guy, and the show goes out of its way to remind you of this fact. But sometimes it almost feels like their audience isn't listening, and they're trying to insist upon it. <laughs> It's like, yeah, he's a really bad guy. Like, we are going to have him straight up murder some people. Please, please stop. Please stop liking him. Please. Yes. We we know we 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 know we just charmed your pants off with him in the previous episode. But here's a reminder that he is a ruthless killer. What I do like here is that Mike talked a few episodes about about having Gus's security stretched thin. And then here you have Tyrus confronting Gus about some of these places he feels like he's placing them in in areas that don't make sense or are not the highest priority. And you see with Mike that it's a place where he can see his, uh, you know, Kaylee and Stacy, his, uh, his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. And then it kind of clicks in me like, all right, so he's got people watching Stacy and Kaylee. He's got people watching the upholstery shop where Nacho's father is. You have people watching quote the lawyers. To me, it felt like, Maybe he isn't totally convinced Lalo is alive, and but he's – even though he's saying these people are stretched thin, he's making sure the people that he either cares about or in his mind are kind of innocent bystanders in this, at least especially the father and his own family. He's making sure they're watched and taken care of in this process of stretching these people thin at the same time. And I thought that was a really great way to show Mike's priorities with, with who he has being watched at this time. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a plot significant scene, but we do again we do again get something with Mike visiting his family and the significance of that because you're not I don't think you're going to see you may not see them again in the rest of the show. So I think having one scene of it is is acceptable because I think again reminding the audience again people who may not be watching the show obsessively like us like reminding them that yes, Mike is doing this for a very specific reason, and that there is a there is a significance to why he is basically being a quote unquote bad guy. Like he wants to support his family, and unlike Walt, it genuinely does feel like he is doing it for his family. Um, Mike kind of looks like a grump anyway, but he just <laughs> he looks so tired, Kevin. And I know it's because Jonathan Banks is an older gentleman at this point, but man, he looks so tired. And he, he does look very tired, but I also think like one of the reasons why he doesn't want to get Nacho's father involved in this is like they're kind of in the same situation as Nacho literally gives his life, life to protect his father. Mike is living his life to protect his his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. Part of that is guilt over the way his son died. But it, I think he sees that with Nacho as like he literally gave his life to protect the one person in his life he loves, his family. And that's what Mike's all about too. And I think this is a great scene to really hit that moment home, especially when Tyrus is questioning why he's still watching the upholstery – having people watch the upholstery shop. It's such a great little thing to show into Mike's character. You mentioned the opening though, and that's where we're going to go to next because that's where a lot of this the rest of this episode will be talking about Jimmy and Kim. It's a flashback to young Kim shoplifting at a jewelry store in the mall, and her mother berates him in front of the store owner, but then in private is kind of commends her for it and gives her the necklace and earrings she tried to steal, and they're the same earrings that she wears today. A great scene, praised by just about everybody who watched it, and I think there's a lot of things you can either take away from this, and I'm curious what you think. 
Because we saw the one episode a season ago where her mom is super late picking her up from string practice or something, and her mom's kind of drunk, and she defiantly walks home instead of getting in the car with her. So is it a cry for help or attention? Is this an adrenaline rush, her doing this? Because we see she gets that adrenaline rush, too, with committing crimes in the future. And does this show that her crime habit has been there all along? What did you make of it? I definitely think that they are showing her trying to commit these crimes for a reason because maybe she's not getting the love at home that she wants. So this is how I think to an extent there's also this idea, okay, she steals the necklace and while her mom does berate her in front of the store owner, her mom ultimately commends her. So the argument that you could make is that Kim learns that by doing bad things, you can get a lot of credit for it and you can get what you want from doing that. And sometimes playing by the rules is almost a bad thing. So I think that's that, that may be the message that they're, they're kind of putting forth here because again, we're kind of in the end game at this point. So every scene, like there has to be a reason for it. So I would imagine that putting this shoplifting flashback, like we want to get, get an idea of who Kim is as a person. So clearly there is a lot going on with both of them. And I, I give the writers a lot of credit for saying, okay, we're going to take this five to 10 minutes and we're going to show Kim kind of in her element. Because again, so much of the show again is focused on Saul, but again, this final season, we are really putting Kim in the driver's seat. And I think this is an example of it. Like we are again underlining the fact that Kim is kind of the one that's driving so much of what's happening. And I again want to point out that they, uh, they, they nailed the casting of both the mother and young Kim again, just can't be mentioned enough how good they are at basically finding another version of racy horn, probably about the same age and younger racy horn. Yeah, it's wild. The casting is incredible. It's clear those two actresses spent a significant amount of time studying Kim Wexler and Ray Seahorn to get the mannerisms and everything down pat. It's remarkable. Something I I have to kind of walk back here is, regretfully, when I saw this, I was like, that's the same uh, mall that Gene works at. Because I knew Kim was from Nebraska, and he's in Omaha, but I forgot that she's in Red Cloud, Nebraska, and a quick Google Maps tells me they're about three hours apart. So is it possible... I mean, it's very unlikely, but so I'm going to say it's very improbable, and uh, I was I was probably incorrect. I feel like it was the same mall you would have seen them make a make a shot on the outside that it was Cottonwood Mall or, or make some mention of it. And uh, yeah, that's just my, my my fantasy booking did not work out here, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no. But it was uh, it was certainly a nice idea, and I think it would have justified the scene all the more because we are showing Kim literally in the same mall because I think a lot of people were questioning, why is this here? I understand why it's there, but again, when you're in the final season like this, you want every season, you want every, every scene to matter. You do. And let me tell you a scene that matters because boy, did it make me feel for Howard is you got to see his wife, Cheryl in the flesh. You could tell this is a couple that is in two very different places about their relationship where Howard's, being taught, you know, trying to talk to her. He makes her this cappuccino with a peace sign on it. She is ice cold him. She just dumps the cappuccino into it to go cup. Not really interested in what he has to say. It makes me feel so bad for Howard right now. And it makes you realize that this is not somebody who needs the BS he's being put through by Kim and Jimmy. It's weird to me. I, I question whether we're going to see either the house 
or Carol again. But the thing that's bizarre to me is that they really went out of their way to get a very specific house in this performer. So I am curious to know if we will see them again. So speaking of something else we're supposed to be shown, that same PI that Howard hired shows him pictures of Jimmy taking out a large cash withdrawal from a, from a bank. We'll keep that in mind for later. We get Dr. Caldera, the vet, gets a visit from Jimmy and Kim, and they are getting a drug from him that dilates your pupils. And Dr. Caldera is talking about quitting a life of crime, moving, staying with his vet practice. And this is where we see he has this little black book of his underworld contacts, including a business card for best quality vacuum. And this helps to explain, again, why in later seasons, why does Saul know about the disappearer? And why does someone like Mike not know about him? Well, it's because he didn't have access to this little black book and this business card. And the black book you also see being seized by the police in episode one, and it's all encrypted and decoded. Some fans, I think, did a little work behind it. There was nothing to me that really stood out about that. But I think the biggest takeaway is the the best quality vacuum card and, of course, yeah. uh, them getting the, the drug from him. Yeah, that's that's really what matters at this point. And I think I was also able to kind of put together like what specifically was going to happen in this episode. Like it just became more clear, like, okay, clearly Howard's going to go into a meeting. He's going to get drugged in some way. I didn't know the mechanics of it specifically, but that is definitely what they were going for. And yeah, this is a great scene. It was great to see another character come back and come back for a specific reason. Like we're not just bringing Dr. Caldera back because we want to see him again. We are bringing him back for a reason. And it is not only because he is the one giving them the drugs, but also making the underlining the fact that best quality vacuum is a thing that exists. Unfortunately, because of his untimely passing, we will not see Robert Forrester, but I will be very curious to see how they get around um, that particular part of the story. Because, again, he's dead. I don't I don't want to see digital Robert Forrester at all, but I'm sure that the writers have have already figured out how they're going to address this. I'm imagining like the horror of like them having like digital Jeff Garland and the Goldbergs and that one oh gift you've probably I seen. I don't I don't watch that show, but I saw that and I was Of course. Sad. It's so bad. Oh boy. And that's just for a canceled person, not a dead person. But <laughs> it's better to be dead than canceled, I would say. I, I suppose so. There's an argument to be made. You get Cliff watching Kim do a pro bono case and then inviting her to this luncheon about this foundation that would fund pro bono work. I really liked her and Francesca getting to catch up and reunite in the office. Uh, and Jimmy at this time is in his office working with the film crew and this actor, Lenny, who they make up to look like Rand Casimero. Uh, Lenny is played by the great John Ennis. He's another Mr. Show alumnus. What's interesting is in black and blue, when you see the photo of Rand Casimero in the book, when they find out who the mediator is, a lot of people knowing what John Ennis looks like now thought he was going to play Rand Casimero. And instead, you get him playing the fake Rand Casimero. And what's also interesting is John Ennis is the father of Jesse Ennis, who plays Aaron Brill, which I know in one of uh, the previous episodes of Real Bad, I mentioned that uh, Bob Odenkirk had known Jesse Ennis since she was a little kid. I didn't, I, but I did not remember the reason why. I knew she was in a Mr. Show sketch, but I forgot it was because she was the daughter of John Ennis. So throw that up for another Mr. Show alumnus on the show and somebody who was not there on January 6th at the Capitol. Oof. Oof. It's a heavy shot. Well deserved. That is a heavy shot, but hey, that's that is how it goes sometimes. Uh yeah, um, I just I love I love this character so much. Lenny is is an outstanding <laughs> 
character, and I'll talk about it the next episode, but just just his mannerisms and his behavior. Oh my god. Very specific and just just great. I love that like um when the girl's doing his makeup and she's like, You're doing a great job, he's like, I am, aren't I? So good. I love Lenny in this. And it was great to see the film crew again too. Oh, it's totally great to see them again. And again, um, this probably will be the last – like episode seven is likely the last time we will see them, but just – We'll talk about them in a second, but I can confirm that is in fact the last we'll see of the film crew is episode seven. Um, So yeah, so what happens though is that this luncheon camp is supposed to go to is going to cause her to miss D-Day, but Jimmy's like, ah, that's fine. We can do it without you. Poor Francesca has to call HHM to lie and get the credentials for the Sandpiper conference call. But then on – on D-Day itself, Jimmy is buying a, a bottle of the Zephira on uh, to celebrate when he happens to run into Rand Casimero himself and sees, oh, crap, he has a sling on his arm. So whatever they did with the actor is all moot. And when he alerts uh, Kim on this via phone call and wants to just say, all right, we'll recoup and do it another day. Kim thinks and says, no, it happened. You know, she says it happens today and then turns around and drives back to Albuquerque. So she's insistent on whatever their plan is. It goes down as planned on that day, which will lead to lead into the finale. But Kim is throwing away this lunch in her, her future career to make sure this, this, uh, what happens against Howard pulls off, which is, I think says a lot about Kim, uh, as, uh, as does a lot of the other things that have built up to this moment. I would absolutely agree with you. This is just this is really good stuff all around. And yeah, it's um I don't really know what I could add to what you said because I think it's just a very well executed moment and we learn what Kim's true motives are. Like it's not about the pro bono work. I mean, it's not a one for one. Maybe we will get a scene like this later, but there's a moment when Walt is like, no, I didn't do it for my family. I did it because I loved it. And this is kind of a similar moment. Like Kim is not doing this for the pro bono work. She's doing it because she really enjoys the high that she gets from committing these crimes and fucking people over. And it's, um, it's a great payoff to the things that Kim has done. And again, Kim is writing checks that, uh, she's gonna she's gonna have to cash very soon, probably sooner than she would have wanted. But uh, what a great ending to the episode, and what a great character moment for Kim. Well, here we are. We're at the the final episode of the first half, episode seven, plan and execution. Emphasis on the execution part. Tom Schnau is writing and directing the episode. Really good teaser where we see that that Lalo is in Albuquerque and is spying on the laundromat uh, from an adjacent sewer. But now we get into what Jimmy and Kim are up to. Jimmy has to grab Lenny from his day job as he's collecting grocery carts in the shopping center of I don't know what kind of store. But they got to reshoot all the photos they did this time with Lenny in a cast. We see that Jimmy's handing him a package at the time. And as the pictures are then developed, Jimmy and Kim are coating the photos with a liquid using a paintbrush then we see Jimmy running off and handing the photos off to Howard's PI, and this is where we learn for sure that they were in cahoots the whole time. It's a great payoff. I saw him, and I was like, wait, is that – oh, man. Jimmy I like that a, they, I like they didn't make it showy. I like that they just had him there collecting the photos, and he very quickly moved on. Like almost you could miss it. He stopped, gave a thumbs up, and went just so you got a quick shot of his face where you're like, oh, my god, that's him. Yeah, really good stuff. Lalo in uh, coming back to Albuquerque, him spying on the laundromat, even that just so well executed, him being in the sewer. Like, 
of course he is the person that wakes up one second before the alarm goes off too. I love that yes. detail as well. Like Lalo <laughs> and Gus are very much of the same ilk. So the thing that's going through your mind is like, like Lalo is either dead or he got got in some way and is in jail. And it's like, yep. how does that happen? We'll get to it in predictions, but I think I, I've got a sense of where this is going. Okay. Well, uh, I want to point out a few things about this whole reshoot with Lenny and stuff. Uh, so when he picks up Lenny, you know, he's an actor. So he's practicing lines in the parking lot during his job. And they're from Angels in America. And they received permission from Tony Kushner himself to do so. I always like those little details when they get like the music or stuff like this from the person itself who did it. It um, is. Uh, it's a really good show. Uh, I believe that there is a filmed version that streams on HBO Max. Part one is very good. Part two is not nearly as good, but I would strongly recommend that people check it out because it is a, it is a very good play about that time period. Is that the one with Mary Louise Parker in it? Uh, yes, and uh, Meryl Streep is in it, and Al Pacino, and yeah, it's it's very good. I think it aired the same year as this show takes place, 2003. Yes. I yes. believe that the show takes place – I think we're in 04 now, but yeah, just really good stuff. It was a big deal at the time. I remember when that came out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean it's a great play from what I understand. I've never seen it live, but I've heard great things. Josh Fadon, who plays Joey Dixon, he's in this classroom at this college and he's handing out equipment as someone who works in the equipment center. I don't know about you, but I've I've seen college classrooms that look like that. And how depressing was it to see like one of those kind of – Lecture halls are inherently uh, depressing, and I'm I so hate sad. them, and I have never taught in a lecture hall, and it is my intention to never do so because of the reason that you just said. They are very, very depressing places, and college, colleges in general are not well-maintained, so that building was probably like built in the 60s or 70s and has not been well-maintained. So that's what ends up happening is you get a shitty lecture hall and a not-so-exciting class, and yeah, lecture halls just suck, like especially if you don't have a lot of people in them. They're just awful. Yep, no doubt. And then speaking of Joey Dixon slash Josh Fadim, he confirmed on social media, this is it for the film crew. So uh, fortunately, they all get to live a, a round of applause for all three of them uh, for doing great work all six seasons of Better Call Saul. I thoroughly yeah, enjoyed yeah. seeing them every time they showed up. They were definitely – they were comic relief in a show that definitely needed it. And <laughs> – they um, just even the negotiating that goes on in this episode is just great because <laughs> Saul is just so annoyed at having to give them more money. Like he could clearly afford it, but he just doesn't want to give them more money. And just the negotiation, I, I just good stuff. Really good stuff. But then it comes to D Day, the meeting with Howard and Cliff representing, you know, the the people of Sandpiper. When you get Rich Schweiker coming into this big meeting, and their plan goes off. Perfectly. Jimmy and Kim says they've called in to listen in to make sure it does. But when the real Rand Casimero shows up, he's already seen the PI photos, which were wet when Howard touched them. And he tries to say that he got bribed. And when he gets the photos, they've been switched. He tries to call the PI, but his phone is disconnected. He looks like a giant, crazy a-hole in front of Cliff and Rich, Rand himself, everybody else in the meeting. He tries to claim to cliff again this is all jimmy but cliff ultimately says look this doesn't matter rich and them say they're pulling off their new deal to go back to the original one that will reduce each day it backs howard into a corner where he has to oblige and take the settlement and they do and like you pointed out earlier kim and jimmy are are getting it on to this decision uh and it is 
all a very tense scene watching it go down and it is it is quite the wild scene and i know you want to talk about some of this but this was this was a whole remarkable situation to me seeing this all play out it is remarkable for a number of reasons. I think the mo- the biggest one is that there is a significant amount of this episode that does not have Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn. And I think that's pretty wild because this is, again, this was not designed to be a mid-season finale, but it kind of turned into a mid-season finale. So it's wild to me that your two main characters are not involved. I mean, they yes, they are involved, but... Like, they are not actually in the same room, and so much of this is about Patrick Fabian and Ed Bigley Jr., and they, they kind of have to carry the middle portion of this episode, and they do a great job. And just like episode three was a showcase for Nacho, this was an incredible showcase for Howard. It's the stuff that happens in the boardroom. It's his scene with Cliff. Like, the thing that I love about the Rich Schweikert stuff is that there is almost like a sadness to the offer that he's making. Like it doesn't come across like he's taking pleasure in taking off a million dollars a day. Like I think there was legitimate concern over one of his brethren. And I really, really like that. I really appreciate the fact that like Schweikert isn't being evil. Like this is like the, like he's just doing business. Like this isn't personal to him. It's just like, we're going to go with the original deal and then we're going to take a million dollars off because he wants them to take the deal right. and to get and to resolve this and to get Howard some help, I'm sure. And right. I also well, love that – go ahead. Sorry, but that's how Schweikert ends the call. You know, The conversation with Cliff is when it ends. He's like, you know, I hope you – know, please get Howard some help or I hope he's OK or whatever he says. But yeah, the, the, the delivery of it is more important than we're putting here. But yeah, Schweikert does an incredible job of being um, compassionate in, in putting down their decision. And I love the fact that Cliff is smart enough to understand that, yes, Jimmy and Kim probably are behind this ultimately or that there are clearly some shenanigans. But I love the fact that he's like, it doesn't matter. Like, this is where we're at now. We have to deal with this. And I really appreciate the fact that Cliff isn't like, oh, Howard, you're a terrible lawyer. You need to get help. You're fired. Like, he's not an asshole to him, but he's just like – He's like, Howard, this this is what it is. Like, we have to accept this deal, and it doesn't matter. Like, this is where we're at now. We have to handle the situation as it is and not and not worry about anything else. And I, I love the way that they played it off. It's it's great stuff from Patrick Fabian and Ed Bigley Jr. across the board. And uh yeah, I'm I'm just I'm really happy that we got like a great Howard episode. I think Howard has been a has been a very good character. I think I don't know if they envisioned Howard being as important as he was at the beginning of this run, but clearly he has become somebody that is well-beloved by the cast. He is well-beloved by the fandom as well, and this was a great way for him to go out, and we're going to get to that scene, I'm sure, yeah. but – it's uh, it's it's great, and I love the 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 picture of Chuck, kind of looming over all of this as well, and the scene that Howard has with uh, the young lawyer. I don't know if he's a lawyer, but the assistant, whatever, and like the fact that Howard says maybe there's maybe there's more to everything than being a lawyer, and it's it's mm-hmm. really insightful. Also makes you realize he's going to die, but like just some really insightful stuff. Like maybe there is more to this life than than just working and and being a lawyer. Really good stuff. Yeah, I've got a few more things to say. First of all, that scene, that is apparently a real trick you can do. Uh, if, if you don't remember the scene, uh, that's when like the paralegal assistant drops the can of ginger ale as he's restocking the fridge, and 
Howard says, you know, by by spinning it, by spinning it slowly and opening it, you you don't get the the can to burst and spray everywhere like it does when it's shaken up. And he says that he learned that from Chuck, and that's when he gets into the talking about all that. That's apparently a real thing you can do. So I never knew that mind blown moment for me. I will never look at a, a can of soda or seltzer or whatever the same way again. But I also love that when Howard and Cliff have their call, not their call, but their conversation. Howard admits to being played. He's smart enough to realize what's going on, even if it does sound crazy. Cliff is smart enough to know it doesn't matter. And Cliff is also smart enough to know that even though Howard says, hey, I'm the principal on this. It's my decision if we settle or not. Cliff says, "Okay, well, I'm going to have no choice but to explain everything I saw to the board. And do you think you will be able to convince them that all of that was Jimmy McGill? And that's when it gets them to settle. And I thought everything was so smartly done uh, and played out by all the characters doing their roles to perfection. It it really is such a great moment in this show. But I, I want to point something out specific about Howard. I think we have done a good job of kind of talking about building sympathy. But I love the moment when he has uh, one of the Sandpiper ladies go into a wheelchair, even though she doesn't need a wheelchair. Yes, I knew I you were going to point this out when you mentioned this. I really like that because, again, it shows that he is not a perfect person. Like, we see him take the chair out of the room, and it's like, why is he doing that? And it's to get this wheelchair in there. And, uh, yeah, just mm-hmm. a really good moment. It's just, it's the equivalent of, like, when, when uh, the steroid trial was going on and Vince McMahon wore, uh, wore a neck brace. You're, <laughs> you're just building sympathy. Right, because she's like, oh, I'm fine. I can walk. And he's like, I'd feel better if we just made you more comfortable in sitting down in the wheelchair. Yeah, so like, Howard, yeah. Comfort, Howard's- I'm sure. Howard is not a perfect person, and I love that they accentuate that with that little – with that scene. So back to Lalo. He's recording a video for Don Eladio explaining that Gus has a super lab hidden in a laundromat and says he'll kill the guards and show proof. And then Lalo's calling Hector at the nursing home, and when he calls, he hears what's clearly the line being tapped, and he hangs up. But then realizes, oh, hey, I can use this to my advantage. And he tells Hector, I couldn't find proof, but I'm going back to the plan that the chicken man gets it tonight. And then he sees at the laundromat across the street, them, Mike and another group leaving and then pulling off a shift or whatever. As he's planning his next move, he sees a cockroach walk by and he remembers that there was a lawyer that he called a cockroach last season. And uh, that's when he leaves the sewer. What fortuitous timing. <laughs> right? Uh, and I learned that from the podcast, filming a cockroach is not easy. Animals in general seem to be a pain in the ass, and why would you ever do that now? When you can CGI them, well, because CGI often doesn't look good, but yeah, I would imagine it's really hard. Just uh, more good stuff from Tony Dalton. Just just perfect. perfect. And then the last thing you see with Gus and Mike in this first half is Gus is having a presentation of donating money to like this youth development group when Mike shows up to play the call for him, and then he tells Gus that I've pulled everybody off of the low-priority security, everything is on the laundromat, and Gus in his house, which is very important for the crucial scene in this episode. Which is um, very un-Mike-like to do that, I think. Like, does Mike know about Lalo's confrontation with Saul and Kim at the end of the season five? Yeah, because remember, he he has Jimmy hide his cell phone underneath right. his kitchen thing and he's watching with the sniper rifle from afar so um i wonder if they're going to play this up like mike made a huge mistake probably but i think if, i think that's why he's talking about men being stretched thin because he's like i can't just find because if he could find more men and put them on other outposts presumably he would have done that by now 
And so apparently they have to also work in, a, in the restaurant as well because Gus has standards and he's not going to let a little thing like, oh, almost getting murdered uh, deter him from the fact that he wants perfection from his restaurant. Exactly. Exactly. But that does set up our scene where Howard confronts Jimmy and Kim at the house. And something that's uh, important is Jimmy goes to answer the door and Kim notices the candle flicker from, I guess, the, the door opening waivers the, the candle. And uh, you have Howard, who's inebriated. He's brought over wine to celebrate the payout from Sandpiper. And he's wondering aloud why Jimmy and Kim, what they tell themselves to make all this harassment okay. They assume that Howard's going to be embarrassed, but he's going to land on his feet. They don't know about the stuff with Cheryl. Jimmy's going to get his payout, and that's great. But what Howard says he's going to do after also, by the way, demonizing Kim's choices, he realizes this is this is who Jimmy is. It's always he's always been this way. Chuck knew it. Now I know it. But Kim, you know, she's one of the smartest people he realizes. And this is the path that she's chosen to take. And he says that, you know, he has this realization that she gets off on it and he's going to dedicate his life to making sure everybody knows they're sociopaths. But at this time, the candle flickers again. Lalo enters the room. But first you see Jimmy and Kim's face, and they're absolutely horrified at Lalo entering the room. He pulls out a handgun. He twists his silencer, says they need to talk, shoots Howard in the head. Howard falls. They're again mortified of what they're seeing Jimmy and Kim are, and then he has to tell them, let's talk. And that's how we conclude this first half of the and season. It's, and Howard is dead. He is dead. Howard's dead. Dead, dead, dead. And what's fascinating to me is that season six was not designed to be split up in two parts. But they got behind in production and ended up having to split it. But I mean, this to me perfectly works as a as a as a halfway point of the season. But it was not designed to be that way, which makes it even all the more amazing. But it's this kind is of a an, miracle that yeah, that this actually worked out really well. But this scene, there, there's so much to say. It's it's a great performance out of Patrick Fabian again. Like just like Nacho, Howard gets to say everything that he wanted to say and go out with a certain amount of dignity. Um, I am presuming that, you know, getting shot in the head, I have to believe we're going to get 15 minutes of Saul and Kim burying him, maybe in the desert, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling that it's coming in uh, in the next uh, episode, but it's a, it's a tour de force monologue, and um, Howard really lays out the stakes. He really lays out just how bad Kim and Jimmy have gotten, and Jimmy, Jimmy definitely feels it. Um, he definitely feels everything that Howard says, and... I love the fact that when Lalo walks in, Jimmy says how and Kim says Howard. And I think you can interpret that a number of different ways, but I think you could almost make the argument like Kim is trying to cover for for what Jimmy said, like in some way. So that's a that is a theory that I've read. That 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 Howard that that Jimmy saying how is kind of a mistake on his part. Jimmy saying how when? Um, because because Jimmy doesn't know that Lalo's alive, and that's the other thing is Kim knows that Lalo's alive. Jimmy doesn't. Actually. I'm sure that will be a conversation point at some point uh, in the very near future. I would say so, but yeah, this is you know Jimmy and Kim. They like again they they messed around with Chuck and it and it was the ultimate price where Chuck took his own life. Now they 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 fucked around with Howard, and because of this, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and now he's dead. So I guess you could say they fucked around and found out? More or less, yeah. I feel like from watching what Jimmy and Kim are doing, especially Kim, they need to feel the weight of their consequences. And 
no heavier weight than this. Howard literally being murdered right in front of them in such a vicious manner to leave there being no doubt that he is dead. Uh, it's uh, it's fantastic stuff. It's it's mortifying, but from an execution standpoint, pun pun not intended. Uh, really good stuff. Just Thomas Schnauz really knows what he's doing as a director and as a writer. Yeah, he's amazing. And that's the first half of season seven. Before we get into predictions, your overall thoughts on the the first half uh, I'm sorry, of season six so far. This is a really good season of television. I think we are off to a really good start. I think I certainly think you can make the argument that, you know, there are a couple of episodes that aren't as uh, as good. But certainly I, there are scenes in every episode that I will think back fondly on episode five, which probably is my least favorite has the boxing scene and I could rewatch the boxing scene a million times. Uh, episode seven is probably one of the best episodes in the series history. I mean, I would argue you could say almost two of the best episodes in better call Saul history are in this first half episodes three and seven. I think, I think I prefer episode seven just because there, I think you get two incredible scenes episode three. I mean, the ending scene is really great, but, I, I don't. I don't think it's as strong. I think episode seven, top to bottom, is is much stronger. But it's a, it's a really good season of television. If I were if I were to make a top ten uh, TV episode or TV shows of twenty twenty two, Better Call Saul would certainly certainly be on that list. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's just a really good season of television. And I trust that these writers know what they're doing with the second half as well. Yeah, I I agree with everything you said, and I also think it's really great that. We got rid of Nacho in episode three, and then you could focus a lot on the Howard stuff in the back half, and then now he's gone episode seven. So you're kind of slowly – they didn't wait till episode 13 to be like, here's the fate of Howard, Nacho, Lalo, and Kim. You're getting it slowly throughout the season in a a very logical progression. So now we only really enter the back half of season seven with – I'm sorry, the back half of season six with the fate of three of our characters in question instead of five. But yeah, this is this is fantastic. I agree with you. Three and seven will go down as like two of the top ten episodes of Better Call Saul. Just some of the best television out there, if not the best. I love covering the show. I can't wait for us to to watch and discuss the the second half of the season coming later. But now it's time for our predictions. I think you can break this up, and we can maybe go back and forth with this. But I think we should break it up with the future of Lalo, the future of Kim, and the future of Jean. Uh, Takovic. I actually want to go episode by episode for, wow. for and it'll ex, I'll explain it. So if you you give all your predictions, you could go first because I think I'm going to be talking for a while. So right. go through all your predictions. The only one I'm certain of really is Lalo. We have the Chekhov's gun there in the super lab. I think there's a confrontation in the super lab where Lalo gets killed by that gun. I don't know if it's going to be Mike. I don't know if it's going to be Gus. I don't know if it's going to be somebody else. But I think the best revenge after he's talking about the South Wall and getting Werner in season five is after Lalo is killed. He's either buried under the super lab or like turned like cremated and then put into the the concrete or slab or whatever that builds the South Wall of the super lab. I think that is Lalo's fate. Kim, I think, is alive. And I think that is who Jean sees in the mall in the black and white. Either she's in prison, either she also went under the... The vacuum root had to change her name, and this is the first time. But either way, it's the first time that Jean will be seeing her from afar in that black and white scene. But I do not think Kim Wexler is dead. And I don't think she's like married to Saul and just living a normal civilian life throughout Breaking Bad either. 
So I think basically the entire Breaking Bad timeline, he doesn't see her. Like Saul doesn't see her at all. Maybe a visit to prison or something. But otherwise, like when Gene sees whoever he does in the distance at the beginning of season five, it's Kim Wexler. Or maybe she's going by Giselle now or something else. That's who he sees there. And as for the future of Gene, I am undecided. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about him because I can see him either living or dying, either as he gets to live or it's poetic justice that he dies this, you know, and as does Walt and Jesse's really the only one who gets to live there. I can also see there being a period of time where he's the one who has to deliver. Remember that the end of El Camino, Jesse gives a letter to Brock to the disappearer. And maybe it ends up in the hands of Gene or Saul who has to deliver it to Brock. I think that would be a cool thing, too. Because, wow. again, we also we also forget that we're going to get Jesse and Walt in one of these last episodes, too. So, And I have no idea what that's going to look like. Part of me thinks – and this is partially based on what you said – and I know what you're going to say, but I think you, you're going to get an episode in there somewhere where we fall into the Breaking Bad timeline, and that's where you get Jesse and Walt. I don't know that you see them in the future or whatever. But what that is, I don't know. We also still have – there's a, a meeting that Francesca is supposed to have as Saul is you know, shredding his documents in that one teaser of season five that's in the Breaking Bad timeline. He tells Francesca to meet him at this date at this time at 3 p.m. or whatever. We have that, too. We don't know what that's going to look like. So a ton to look forward to. But ultimately, Lalo's dead and buried in the super lab. Kim is alive, but either imprisoned or changed her name and gone away. And Gene, I'm undecided on whether he lives or dies. Jerome, hit me. Deep breath. Okay, so there are six episodes left. And I'm going to run down what I think is going to break down in each episode. And you'll see why I do this by the end of what I say. So I think episode one is just going to be a lot of setup. I think there is a very real possibility that we get like 15 minutes of uh, Kim and Saul having to bury Howard. I don't really think that anything is going to come of that except for Howard being buried. I think there's almost going to be this assumption that he just like ran away. And I don't think there's going to be like a police investigation, partially because we don't really have time for one. So I think there is a distinct possibility that that just kind of – that's how that storyline gets resolved. So I think episode one of the new season is just kind of recalibrating and setting up episode two. So, Kevin, I agree with you. I do think that Lalo is going to be buried in the super lab. I – come on. I mean it's just – it's just too perfect. But I I come back and I've talked about this throughout this episode of the podcast that Kim is the one that's always made of stronger stuff. So I think that what you're going to end up with is, to me, you are in a scenario where I don't think Kim ends up in prison because I don't think that that is all that dramatically interesting. But what I do think you're in a situation, you have to have Kim alive because, again, if to me, if Kim dies, then why would Saul ever be a lawyer for the drug cartel? I just – I've never seen the logic of that, so I think Kim has to live. But I don't think Kim can be an Albuquerque either. So what I think has to happen is she simultaneously has to do something so bad that she gets disappeared while also she has to live. So I think she is going to be the one that actually kills Lalo. Wow, that is that is wild. I I mean, I think I think it's I think it only makes sense. Like, again, she has to do something terrible because I do think she's going to get disappeared. 
And I think that coming back to that line, the Chekhov's gun, this to me is the ultimate payoff of Kim Breaking Bad is her taking a life. So I think Lalo ends up dead because of Kim, not because of Okay, I, I can see it. So episode three of the new season, I believe, is when Kim is going to get disappeared. And I believe that at the end of episode three, Kevin, you're going to love this. You are going to see Walt and Jess at the end of the episode, but they're not going to get credited in the episode so as to hide their presence. And then you're going to get a one week of hype to build the return of Walt and Jesse officially for the fourth episode of part two. Do you think we see Saul either get a connection to Walt and Jesse through Badger or one of other Jesse's guys? I think there is that possibility because, again, I'm just kind of going through broad strokes of the episode. Fair enough. Okay. But certainly I think you're going to see – you may see something like that. Um, The Francesca 3 p.m. scene, I could definitely see that happening in the episode four. I think episode four is where you kind of get like the fast forward to Breaking Bad timeline. I think we basically get that in one fell swoop because if for no other reason that I think you have to do that. So I believe that episode four kind of ends with Saul slash Gene slash Jimmy kind of driving off or being driven off to wherever he's going to be. The penultimate episode, I think, is going to be all Gene, as will the finale. I believe that we will get a reunion with Gene and Kim. I do believe that that Kim will end up dead and Gene will end up in prison. Do you think that the person Gene saw when he was making his phone call to the disappear and said, never mind, was that Kim he sees? I will. I would say yes, and I've. I didn't know that when we saw the episode, but now as we've gone through the first half, I'm convinced of it. Okay, and you think Gene ends up in prison? He doesn't maybe take his own life before the cops get him or something. No, nope, I think he ends up in prison. I, I almost think it's like it's one of those things. I think these writers have really gone out of their way to make Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul two very separate shows, and I think having Gene die similar to Walt is not something the writers are interested in doing, quite honestly. So I think there is a very real possibility that he ends up in prison. Okay, I like that prediction. I don't have anything to argue with or contend with. I think that's very fun that we can have these thoughts and we've given a good deal of thought to it. And I think that it's fun. There's a lot to play with. So we'll just have to see how the season goes. And it's going to be a lot closer the next time you and I podcast, not just about Breaking Bad, but uh, we're bringing back another one of our shows we're going to be discussing later. This so I, I am genuinely excited. Not that it wasn't for Better Call Saul, but I think the third season of Barry, I've seen six episodes. As we are recording this, I believe Kevin has only seen four. I think this is the best season of Barry to date. So far, I don't know that I agree, but I think episodes we'll five and six are going to change your mind. OK, fair enough. We'll talk about all that next month. In the meantime, you can follow me on social media on Twitter at K413. When I do wrestling reviews or other things for this website, I will post them there. Jerome, what do you have going on with the Pantheon and other things? Uh, we are talking about the mid-90s Fox Kids Spider-Man. That's what Brian and I have spent most of our time doing. We have also been talking about some of the new uh, superhero releases on Disney+, Plus plus the movies. I'm sure that we will be discussing Thor very soon, uh, but you can check us out to hear what we have to say about uh, Spider-Man. We're calling it kind of Spider-Man 94, just because that's a logical point. Uh, but it's uh, it's been very, very interesting to go through that show because there's there is a lot of horror influence that I did not realize when I was watching at the at the time. And uh, it made a lot of sense that Sam Raimi would be the one chosen to direct the first trilogy. 
Yes, I, w- I definitely agree with that. Uh, good stuff to be covering. Go give that a listen. Give all the other stuff at Enter the Real World a listen or a read. And uh, we'll be back next month to talk to you about Barry Season 3. It's 3, right? Yes. Barry Season 3. We'll talk to you again next month, folks. You know, after I watched an episode, uh, one of the episodes of Better Call Saul, I saw Bob Odenkirk's guest appearance on How I Met Your Mother. And all I'm asking these writers, do better than them. 